0: There's a kind of ideal about the way the world ought to be. And then there's your perception about the way your world is. And the discrepancy matters. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know... The topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company listen at the village square we make pigs fly
1: welcome to village square cast this is vanessa rouse thanks for joining us for the new minority with dr justin guest this program is so incredibly important Because Justin really helps us understand some things about our fellow Americans that we may be missing. It's so natural for us humans to look at things from our own perspectives, from where we sit in the world. And I just think it's a gift to be able to learn from someone who has studied other populations and can help us connect some dots that many of us have been puzzled by. We're thrilled to present this program in partnership with Florida Humanities as part of the Created Equal and Breathing Free podcast series. All right, let's get on with the new minority with Dr. Justin Guest. Here's our founder and president, Liz Joyner, to facilitate the program.
0: Thanks. 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 Really, to me, I, I, I believe very deeply that we're at a really important inflection point in American democracy, maybe in world order, in a way that I think that w- there's a fork in the road right now, and the way that we've been going down it is very worrisome to me. So this is really a heart issue for me, and we have a very heart guest for me. I looked really hard to find him, somebody who I thought would help us have this conversation. And so, you know, tempers are high, everybody's upset, and I guess I want to invite you guys to be a place where something new starts, where we take where we are now and move forward constructively. So to that extent, I hope that we can sort of be a family for the evening. Without further ado, Justin Guest is an assistant professor of public policy at George Mason University, Schar School of Policy and Government. His teaching and research interests include comparative politics, minority political behavior, and immigration policy. He focused first on Muslim populations immigrating into Western democracies in Europe before turning his attention to white working class people in Britain and America. His books include Apart, Alienated and Engaged Muslims in the West, and The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in the Age of Immigration and Inequality. His analysis appeared in The Boston Globe, The Guardian. Houston Chronicle, The Hill, The Los Angeles Times, Reuters. It goes on and on. The Times, The Washington Post. New publications are basically being added by the minute because because Dr. Guest has something that's really important to share with us tonight, Justin. So, Justin, contextualize the slideshow that people have been looking at for the evening. Yeah, you know, that's such a great question. Let me just start, Liz, by, by thanking you and by thanking Village Square and by thanking you all and the various donors and contributors. In the course of being invited here, I'm very honored and flattered to be invited. I've learned a lot about this organization. And, you know, it makes me sad that there are not more organizations like this one around our country. In big cities, in small towns, in the Rust Belt, in the desert west, it's this kind of social fabric, the tightening of that social fabric and the threads that I see really loosening up right now at a time when we really need it the most. And, you know, that's really the remedy for the polarization and the atomization that we're up against, I think, in American society. And so, you know, the more you guys can do to support organizations like this, the merrier, and I'm certainly happy to do my part as well. So thank you for being here, and thank you very much again for inviting me, Liz. So to answer your question, the images that you're looking at right now are from Youngstown, Ohio, but another half of these images are from Barking and Dagenham, which is east of the east end of London. It's called East London. These are images from a city that was once a Mecca. For the manufacturing era. Youngstown, Ohio was basically a Silicon Valley of the manufacturing age. People from everywhere, every corner of the earth, came to Youngstown because it had these factories pumping and percolating soot into the air. And Youngstowners, for their part, as long as you saw that black smoke coming out of those factories, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, working three shifts, you knew times were good. In the summer, the, really any time of the year, but especially in the summer, the air would glisten from the shine of graphite in the air. And it would settle onto people's windshields and their patios. And they'd wipe it, and they'd look at each other and say, Pater, Pater. Because times were good. You got a good job, That was a middle-class salary, uh, 9 to 5. It was stable. You weren't going to lose it. And if you did lose it, you needed to get another one the next day. And it was enough to support a family, often without having your spouse work as well. You know, these factories were like part of that community fabric. They were sort of like the village square for those days, right? Because they provided support for newsletters and picnics and events like this where you gather people together. They allowed for a community to feel more organized together. And one day on September 19th, 1977, 40 years ago, the first factory in Youngstown, Ohio, where they built steel, shut. All of a sudden on a Monday. It's called Black Monday. And when it shut, without any notice, there were no jobs to get the next day, as used to be the case. Because it started a series of closures, one after the next, until every major steel mill in that city basically shut down within five years. Fifty-five thousand jobs gone in a five-year period. And that's not just a collapse, that's a catastrophe. In a city, you know, that had 170,000 people there, 55,000 jobs is enormous. And there was a string of events that took place after that. In the intimate lives of people, domestic abuse rates went up, divorces started to skyrocket, suicides rose very steadily, and eventually Youngstown, Ohio, this now dilapidated steel town, became the murder capital of the United States of America. And it shows you what happens when that civic fabric comes apart. We're right? talking about jobs that were good, solid, middle-class jobs where you could have the job, you'd stay with the company for your life, you'd raise your children, you'd retire. Exactly it's right. A whole, whole different thing. And, and it's also that with those jobs also went your social life, right? It went your economic means of engaging with your community, right? Whether you're going to the barber or, or whether you're going to the market. And it also went your political life. Because you didn't have money anymore, and so suddenly you felt like you didn't matter as much. Or you weren't part of a union anymore, and therefore you didn't have the platform to make claims of the political system from that union. So it was really like a house of cards. It just came straight down. And these are dilapidated factories, which you see right there. One of them is a tire factory. This is one of the last, we talk about civic life in Youngstown where you see the neon lights in a cafe, that's the Golden Dawn pub. And the Golden Dawn is one of, is, is maybe the most treasured institution in Youngstown because it's one of the last few hangouts for working-class people in Youngstown. The rest of them have all closed up because so they can't get the business. And so these kinds of pubs were those hubs of community life for so many people. And, and sure enough, you know, they're not there anymore. So you call them post-traumatic cities? Called post-traumatic cities. They have, they have endured the trauma, uh, an apocalypse in many ways. And one of the observations that you made in the book that really has importance to me is that you observe that at a national level, what we see is the politics that come out of post-traumatic cities without understanding what's going on in post-traumatic cities. That it's hard to contextualize unless you know what's happening. Yeah, I think these things are so easy to judge from afar, you know, and, and context matters so much. But more than, more than just judgment, I think that we start to lose scope of the humanity at the center of these crises. And, you know, when we talk about a, a city collapsing in this apocalyptic way like Youngstown has, and by the way, like many other post-traumatic cities have around the United States, not just the Rust Belt either. You know, there are cotton towns in the south, you know, rubber towns elsewhere in the north, a lot of factory cities, factory towns. When you have one of these great collapses and great catastrophes, there are thousands of many catastrophes happening in the living rooms of the homes that you just drive right on by or see when you're flying over. And I think that it's important that we humanize these crises in order to really understand what's going on in people's lives. You know, we talk about 1977, Liz. For many people, that was when the Great Recession started. It wasn't 2007. For folks in the Rust Belt, who really were the swing voters that everyone talks about, their crisis, their economic crisis, has been going on for the last 40 years. So when we talk about, oh, the global recession it was a big deal, yeah, it was a big deal. But that was when all of us kind of started to feel the the hurt, the pinch that they feel like they've been feeling ever since the 1970s. And in some ways, some of us are just feeling pinched now, right? And so, but for... Politically. But for them, right, politically, for for the people in these communities, you're talking 40 years. That's epic. Mm. It. Yeah. yeah. It, w- without it, any signs of hope. Or without sort of interaction that, you know, people sort of aren't going there. They're not understanding. They're not immersing themselves in, in, in the situations that existed. I pulled a quote from a college student's essay that I read online that said these people are scraping the bottom of the barrel and they seemingly have nothing to benefit from maintaining the system of order that keeps them at the bottom. I mean I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean I think that one of the most detrimental parts you know when we think about losing the sort of fabric and the social fabric is that the, the core of a society are the people who live there. And Youngstown, Ohio, as I'm continuing with this particular example that I'm so familiar with, we talk about being 170,000 people strong at its peak. But today, it has 65,000 people. They've lost two-thirds of their population, right? It is a shell of what it used to be. And it's not just because the mill's shut, the factories closed, and houses have been burnt down. We can talk about houses being burnt down later. But, you know, what really was the crisis is that Youngstown itself left. You know, people left Youngstown. And demographically, that's devastating, but socially, it's it's death. Yeah, and actually, you know, here in town, we work really hard to keep young, promising people here who can't in Youngstown, right? And in cities like that. Yeah, it's It's hard. I mean, Tallahassee has a business... That will never go under, and that's the state government. <laughs> and with all due respect to the folks here, you know, congratulations—you have a very stable job. Yeah. The, the university, the university is, uh, is also in, in decent shape, uh, you know, if you're at a university. But you know, Youngstown was a product of its era, and I think for a while people thought that the steel mills were in better shape than the state government of Ohio. And for a while, it definitely was. You know, Payter. So one of the reactions I had in reading the book is that just the the moving back and forth from East London to Youngstown, it, isn't it a kind of validation that there's something much bigger going on that we have to be looking at? That obviously these are communities that are disconnected from each other, and the same, very similar things are happening in both. You know, in the United States, we have a propensity to think that when something happens here, it's the first time it's ever happened. it's the biggest time it's ever happened. It's never been like this before it's huge it's you know it's amazing <laughs> I'm channeling someone you know <laughs> and sometimes that's true you know, but sometimes it isn't and in this case, in many ways we were the last ones to come to this populist party. Europe has been going through transformations in its politics over the last 20 years that has seen the rise of what people there call the radical right or the far right. And these are basically politicians that espouse largely, more or less, what you're hearing from Donald Trump. It's protectionist in its economic views and it's nativist in its social views and or nationalist, depending on how you think. And these parties have been popping up around Europe for a very long time, as I mentioned, several decades. Just to give you some examples, the most prominent one would be the Front National, the National Front in France. But maybe you've also heard of the People's Party in Switzerland or in Austria. Then you have the Freedom Party with Gerrit Wilders, who is the head of it in the Netherlands, the Swedish Democrats. And now you have new parties emerging in Germany, Alternative for Germany, where it was very much a faux pas to have a far-right party after its legacy of Nazism. It was frowned upon, but now it's emerging. And in the United Kingdom, where they have the United Kingdom Independence Party. And you may have heard of UKIP, as they're known, because they were basically the ringleaders for Brexit, the decision to leave the European Union. And, you know, really Britain and the United States were very late to this party. And the reason why, and I'm going to go all political science on you for a second, but I think it's important to show how rules matter. The way their election rules worked were different than ours here in the United States. In the United States we have a first past the post system, right? Single member districts. You have a single member districts and the person who has the most votes wins and takes all, right? In continental Europe, they have different rules that are proportionately based. So, if you have a party in a place like Austria and it gets 26% of the vote nationally, they get 26% of the seats in the legislature. So what that means is that far, far right, far left fringe parties have a much better chance of winning because if you support one of those alternative parties, your vote counts as much as anyone else's. So you might as well vote for them. But in the United States, if you had a far right, far left party, you wouldn't vote for a third or fourth party in the United States because you know that your vote's going to be wasted. So this was like sort of part of the internal distress in both the Republican and Democratic Party of late. Is because all those alternatives have to be integrated into our parties, right? And so for this reason, it delayed our arrival to this far-right fiesta going on on the continent, right? And so Britain came in, and now finally we came in, but we, the United States, did something different because we leapfrogged them all. None of them have won over the government in any of these other countries yet. Now, that may change, and some people predict that in France it could change, but it's still looking doubtful according to polls. But as we know, polls are only so useful, as I'm sure you've concluded. We do know that, which is a great segue into, so we were all surprised, most everybody was surprised, not Justin, um, writing, the white working class makes up 53% of the electorate in Michigan, 55% in Pennsylvania, 58% in Wisconsin, 62% in Ohio, 66% in Indiana, and nearly 70% in West Virginia. He kind of called all those states. Um, this subset of the American electorate is the key determinant of electoral outcomes. Duh. But alas, one that we have misunderstood and under-mobilized. So this was knowable. Did I really wrote that? You did. <laughs> well done. <laughs> this was knowable. So I guess I, I have this basic theory in my life, and it's it's proven to be true over and over again. And the theory is this: if you really understand what a human's circumstances are, what they know, what they don't know, what's around them, if you can really sort of walk a mile, they make sense. So presumably, we didn't understand this group of people. So having spent so much time um, in these two communities. What, what do most of us – what are we missing that we need to understand how they make sense? So I think there's two things we need to know, and they're at different levels. So forgive me because I'm thinking because this is all unscripted, so I don't, I don't know what – Yeah, he, I tried to get him to give me some questions. He didn't. No. He likes it this way. I like it this way. It's much more interesting. So when I pause, it's because I'm actually thinking. <laughs> <laughs> So there's two there's two things I think, I mean there's there's obviously a lot of complexity here but the two headlines are one is at the political electoral level and then the second is at the human level sociological level. So at the, at the political electoral level for a long time rust belt in particular rust belt white working class people were viewed as the inscrutable swing voter, Republicans one year, Democrats the next year and and Parties understood these voters to be these fearless independents, right? It's like, you know, you never know what they're going to go for this year or next year. And they kind of go from party to party. And, you know, we have to win them over, but not quite sure how. And the reason why we're not quite sure how is because the parties had issues with white working class people. Republicans, for their part, were okay with the nativism and the nationalism among white working class people. But they weren't okay with the protectionist economics. Democrats were cool with the protectionist economics, but they weren't okay with that nativism and nationalism because it complicates their party coalitions, right? So they refused to directly engage with white working class people, and so they swayed. But the reason that they swayed was not because they were fiercely independent. It was because they couldn't find a single party that actually cared about them. They couldn't find a party that wanted to be and actually was representing their voice. So when they moved to Barack Obama, and many white working class people in the Rust Belt did vote for uh, for President Obama in 2008 and in 2012, it was because they were fed up with the Bush administration, who they supported and made promises, and they weren't kept. And when they supported Donald Trump after supporting Barack Obama, and Youngstown, Ohio, by the way, Mahoning County, had a 20-point swing from, from across four years. Okay? When they did that, it was because they didn't think that Barack Obama's recovery was in their interests. And they didn't feel like he represented their voice either. And finally, you have Donald Trump, improbably this Manhattan real estate mogul millionaire with gold-plated everything. And his beauty queen wife somehow could be their voice. It's because he was the only person who wanted to be their voice. He was the only person that actually sought their vote directly, purposefully, deliberately, and meaningfully from their perspective. So it didn't matter if he wasn't white working class himself. He was the first politician in generations to actually care. First time for 40 years, somebody's even paid attention, even heard, and made them feel powerful again, right? So when Donald Trump says "Make America Great Again," right, and we can talk about that slogan more if you want to later. So note that down. But it was about making white working class people, in many cases, feel great again. You know, the second phenomenon that I wanted to underscore at the human level, at, at the sociological level, is that. And here we're going to get into race, because I'm sure we'll eventually talk about race, so we might as well, hey, let's just jump right into the deep end. That's what we do here. That's good. So for many white working class people, they have felt marginalized in many cases because of their race. They believe that they are now on the back end of the civil rights movement. They think that they are the civil rights case, that they are subject to outnumbering that they are subject to feeling external from government power and that they are being discriminated against because they are white and because they are poor. Okay. Don't kill the messenger in case this nerves you, but it's important that you hear it because I think many of you probably never heard this before. And that's why it sounds so crazy, but it's also the reason why I called my book the new minority. My subjects feel like minorities in countries They used to define. And so what's so contentious about the element of race is that for many people who did not support Donald Trump, the idea that white people are somehow disadvantaged after the legacy of systematic oppression, structural disadvantage that is dangling around our country's necks at all times, is impossible to even conceive in that context. But if you were to speak with my subjects and you say to them, white working class people, don't you get it? You, you benefit from those invisible wages of whiteness, the white privilege that just comes because of your skin tone in this country. There are benefits to that. You're paid more in your jobs. You are taken more seriously. You are not subject to housing discrimination or employer discrimination or casual discrimination, social discrimination. My subjects would say back, look at my life. I am one unexpected medical bill, one car accident from that trailer park, from not being able to feed my kids. What privilege are you talking about? What are these wages of whiteness that you're talking about? What wages have I been paid in my life? And so whether we find what they say to be preposterous, it is human, and it is real for them, and that greater context of oppression and slavery and legacies of structural disadvantage are irrelevant to their living room. One of the things that surprised me in reading your book that I realized I think was just an assumption that I made, so you know when we talk all the time about how social media, the way that we communicate with each other, has sort of put us in our own little silos and really created kind of a sense of it's, it's vaporizing the civic glue. That's why this organization exists, to have some civic glue. I think I thought of that as a big city problem. I think that my bias was that you've got these communities who are having these challenges, but they have each other, that the, that the civic glue is strong there. But, but what you described is that you've got communities that church attendance is way down, marriage is falling apart, that there isn't any. And, and in fact, you really describe sort of a sense of kind of uh, distrust that really infiltrated these communities. More about that. Yeah, and, you know, human beings, as much as we may not want to acknowledge it in all of our modernity right now, we need some sort of moral order in our life. And for some of us that comes from the Bible, some of us that comes from capitalism or Adam Smith, for some of us that comes from you know an upbringing that, of a particular way uh, that instills certain moral order, for some of us it comes from science, something that helps us make sense of the world and our place in it, and for many in the Rust Belt in particular and other parts of the United States where you had factory towns, that mill provided you with that moral order. The city was based around the rhythms and cadences of the job, such that everyone was one together. Kind of like when you're in school, everyone hears those same bells, and they know when lunch is, and they know when recesses, and they know when school's over. And those factories provided you with structure, right? And not only did they provide you with structure in the workplace and things associated with it, but they also created... The need, because they were so stable, they created a, a, a market for political organization to fill political vacuums, right? So unions were so important because not only were they the source of political life, but they were also the source of social life, right? You met each other at union events. You met each other through the union. you were part of something bigger than yourself. And so in the book, as you recall, I, I describe... In many cases in the Rust Belt, what I call is a union hangover. Yeah. Because when the unions went away, the unions were the muscle for white working class people. They were their civic organization. They were their village square. And even differently from the village square, they lobbied. They were partisan, right? And when that went away, white working class people, what about their personal muscles? They didn't have those personal muscles because they had atrophied so long while relying upon the unions to do the work for them. Now, you could argue, you could counter-argue that, well, unions actually politicized this population, whereas perhaps before they weren't politicized. I agree. I think that's a fair point. But the, the point is that it's not just about being politicized in terms of making a difference in your democracy. You have to show up. You have to know how to lead. You have to know how to organize. And the unions basically were outsourced to doing that such that when they disappeared, so much of that political capital went with it. So you've got one industry that's big and huge, and it goes away, and everything goes with it, essentially. Everything. Every, all the way that you organize your life. I mean, this community could sustain something like that because they're different things, but... But Youngstown and other industrial communities, it just vaporizes. That's right. And there are sources today, in the absence of places where, you know, you may have had unions or or, or something similar, where atomization is taking place as well. You know, there's a wonderful book by a colleague of mine from MIT named Sherry Turkle called Alone Together. And it's about the way the internet isolates us, right? And it is very possible that the more things become intermediated between us through television, internet, and other forms of you know, wireless communication that allows us to sort of occupy this you know, our own little bubble and silos, that we become disconnected from each other in those important ways. And so you don't have to have a factory collapse to have that civic life collapse. It's collapsing in a lot of ways around. I mean, everywhere. And I mean, in some ways, it's going to take us a little while. I think we're sort of just catching on. Uh Uh-oh, this is what this causes. But I think one of my personal frustrations is just that it it feels like that's one of those problems that, like, I don't know, Dorothy could always go back to Kansas when she clicked her heels. I recognize that there's economic struggles there, but I wonder why, why the glue isn't getting tighter, you know? Because it feels like they're... It feels like it would empower people and help things move and change, but it just feels like it isn't. Well, I think what we're like seeing... Like church attendance. I mean, that would yeah. be an example is yeah. that you, you got to know a Catholic priest there. And so, like, I, I want people to be meeting each other at church and talking to each other. So, you know, there is a debate in, in the world of social science around you know whether the internet can bring people together in ways that church is used to and a former colleague of mine when I was at Harvard, Robert Putnam, wrote a book called Bowling Alone, which is a very one of the most famous books in political science. And a lot of political scientists, by the way, think he's completely wrong. okay, About a variety of things. But one of the things that I think was most controversial was that Bob Putnam is quite conservative when it comes to the internet. At least he certainly was. And he didn't believe that meetups, chat rooms, organizing online, could replace bowling tournaments, could replace those picnics that I talked about, newsletters, and community organizations where you have to show up. And this was actually repeated by Malcolm Gladwell in a piece he wrote called The Revolution Will Not Be Tweeted, where he criticized Twitter and various other social media as forms of civil rights builders and and, and civic engagement builders because they were so passive. All you had to do is type sometimes anonymously something, but you didn't actually have to show up. You didn't have to sacrifice something. You didn't have to experience something. But I think, and maybe this is just because I'm a millennial, what we're starting to see is the ways that these new tools are very powerful. You look at the revolution in Egypt which was largely done by, actually, Twitter. You know, this was basically a Twitter-based revolution, and because the government of Egypt could not control Twitter, they couldn't suppress opinion. So now, fast forward to today, what the Internet is doing, though, simultaneously, is because it reinforces our preferences by accommodating them, meaning the ads that you see are tailored, for what you want to read about because you've read about it before. you know The content that is suggested to you if you're on Facebook or another social media platform is generated by an algorithm that recognizes your earlier preferences as a good predictor of your future preferences. What this is creating is a, is a siloization of the United States and many other societies because we're not being exposed to things that don't conform to our preferences. So what what's happening here tonight where you have democrats and republicans, liberals and conservatives, elderly and young, white and black does not happen on the internet very much because generally speaking your demographic pro- profile is reinforced into your internet profile. And so it leads all of us to exist in these echo chambers. So while that may unite us in some small way, it is divorcing us and segregating us and sorting us from our fellow citizens. Yeah, and we're spending less time with with this kind of group in our own communities and in our own lives. And hearing things that we disagree with. Right. Hearing right. things that we may not like or haven't heard before. Right. And my personal thing is sort of you know, I mean that's what American democracy is about, is we're structured so that we have to listen to the other side of an issue because that's the only way we can solve the problem. And if we're in fact specifically avoiding it. Uh oh. Right? You're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Um, and people and people don't talk after that. Right. So tell us about James Trafficant in Youngstown. And I I think this is metaphoric because to most of us that's sort of synonymous with it's a name synonymous corruption, right? Yeah. But not in Youngstown. Well, I think I mean well they know I think they know he's I think you know he was corrupt. So so James Trafficant Jim Trafficant and to his friend, Jimbo, Jimmy, was the congressman for Youngstown, Ohio, from 1982 until 2000. 18 years, nine terms, in the U.S. Congress the House of Representatives. Before that, he was the county sheriff, I'm not mistaken. And he has this legendary status in Youngstown, Ohio, amongst its white working class community in particular. When Traficant was sheriff, he accepted bribes from the local Pittsburgh-based mafia and the Cleveland-based mafia. He played both sides. And he was prosecuted by the FBI. Pause for a second. When you're prosecuted by the Department of Justice, they don't do it unless it's a slam dunk. Okay, They don't waste their time with cases they may lose. The feds are usually 100% sure. They prosecuted him. He represented himself in federal court and fended off the feds and got away with it, from all impressions related. And from that moment, Jim Traficant became basically got legendary status. Because already Youngstown was a frustrated place in the nineteen eighties. And when he fended off the feds by himself, just this lone, you know, soldier in the federal court system. It was like a big middle finger up to Washington DC. It's like a Clint Eastwood movie, right? Go to hell. Yeah. Right? And people loved it. And you can see why we feel that way. Right. Because they felt mm-hmm. like they at that point already that things weren't going well for them and that they had been abandoned. And Jimmy Traffican claimed to be their voice in Washington. And when I say their voice, I mean their voice. He funneled word from the street, conspiracy theories you know all kinds of random stuff to the House of the re- Representative floor, to the chamber, and he would go on these often midnight tirades. Okay, and he wore these just garish bell-bottom suits. You know the big uh, '70s ca- collar, lapels, and he had this pompadour on his head, which most people were certain was the toupee, but I think it was actually his hair. In any case, it was strange enough that people weren't sure it was real because they were sure he was real, and he would preface all of his speeches and often end them by saying, beam me up, Mr. Speaker. Oftentimes, the speaker wasn't even there. And he would just rant, rant about things that his colleagues in the house were like, this guy's crazy. But he was saying things that were echoing from the streets of Youngstown, Ohio. We haven't been paying attention for a long time. Yeah. Right? Well, when it's on C-SPAN three at midnight, you know, <laughs> you may be doing other things like sleeping. You know? <laughs> but so Jim Trafficant served as the congressman for that district for the Mahoning County in Ohio for eighteen years, only until two thousand, when he basically had to leave office because he was imprisoned on corruption charges. They finally got him further accepting bribes, 10 counts of, of bribery and, and corruption and racketeering, finally put him into prison. They finally won. And he was replaced by a former aide of his, Tim Ryan, who is still the congressman from Youngstown, Ohio. And Jim Traficant, even in prison, was beloved. He ran for office from prison okay, to, to get his seat back. And he lost. He's not that much of a legend, but he still got like 15, 17% of the vote, you know, for a guy that's in prison, right? And he wasn't able to get his seat back from his former aide. And recently, actually, about three years ago, died in a pretty awful tractor accident. But he is revered in Youngstown as that voice of the white working class person. And in many ways, he wasn't even working class himself. He had a master's degree. It didn't matter. Because Jimbo was their guy. And he heard them. And and really, we're talking about communities that have gotten used to very systemic dysfunction, right? So, you know, I mean, depending on how, mess, I mean, I don't know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, some of us are up there at the top about belonging and being nice to each other. When we're talking about communities that are down at the level of survival. And so so they're talking about, they're having a different conversation. They're in different That's right. And just so you know, if you go to the Royal Oak pub in the east of Youngstown, there is a portrait of Jim Traffekan. A sketch, really. No, I didn't know that. With a crown of thorns around his head. We are in church, aren't we? we? Well, and um, East London, you're talking about, so there was a, a, a gathering. The pubs are going away, right? There was like a 1729 pub.
1: They are that is in, in, gone.
0: They're endangered species, right? Yeah, they just—they're prone to closing because they just don't have the business left. Not just because their community is poorer, but also because their community is, is emigrating. They're migrating right. out it's, of these cities, and then immigrants are coming in, and the and the you know the neighborhood food stores are changing to food of South of uh, North Sub-Saharan Africa. Africa or, and, or, and, or and South so Asia. It's just very substantively different. Really, East London has had much more international immigration obviously than we than we have and that our world. And, and that's is. an interesting point because the two cases, the real thing that makes them different is their location in the scope of their countries, right? So Youngstown being a sort of, you know, a small city in, in the United States, Rust Belt, about an hour south of Cleveland, Ohio, it's not feeding off of Cleveland. It was its own city. And so when people left, there was no one coming back in. They just left. So you had that huge population change and it was a city that was 90 percent white and when i say white i mean like the amalgam of whites so that could include lebanese or hungarian or italian or irish or jews that was 90 percent white today it is 50 50 50 black 50 percent white with some biracial folks in there and it's not that black people didn't leave youngstown or started coming into youngstown it's just that they didn't leave as fast as as the white folks did in east london The demographic change that happened was that white working class people with means left. Those who owned their homes sold them and got out. But it was still on the fringe of one of the most prosperous global cities in the entire world, London. And so immigrants who were moving to the United Kingdom saw East London as this affordable place to live. And the homes that were being sold by white working class people were to people from sub-Saharan Africa. South Asia, Eastern Europe, like Lithuania or other Baltic states. And so their communities were changing, not from demographic change, white to black, because of population displacement, but actually because immigrants were coming in and replacing white working class people. And the sense in the community is, like Youngstown, that the um, social capital, the civic glue, didn't hold. So, you know, you have people talking about how, you know, somebody would die in the neighborhood before and everybody would be over. Well, it just doesn't happen anymore. That's and, exactly. uh, and, I mean, to me, I mean, this is just so basically human. It's I mean, we're talking about human beings who want to live in communities and they feel there's anime instead of community. And I think the hard part for, for East London, but also for Youngstown, is that there isn't a greater sense of we, that holds folks together. So a bunch of immigrants came into your neighborhood. When someone dies, shouldn't they know about it too? Shouldn't shouldn't you knock on their door when you're making an appeal for your church? There's a sense of, oh, they're not like us, right? White working class people in Youngstown don't want to go to the east side or the south side of Youngstown. because That's a black neighborhood. It's like, well, they're not really like us and they're not really going to go along with what we care about. Well, why the heck not, right? And so you have this atomization taking place with demographic change because it's not being it, – it's viewed as as change that is something you can't get over, right? As if, like, we're supposed to live our lives without evolving with our communities. Yeah. And, I mean, isn't that sort of the human condition that we sort of, like, if we could engineer a, a Martian invasion, which I'm not recommending – but wouldn't wouldn't everything shift? Like all of a sudden we see each other as the humans yeah. who need to protect, and and so in some ways that's just sort of how humans roll. Well, yeah, I mean this is this is uh it's funny. East London has always been a sort of immigrant area of London because it was the, the the working class part. It was it was lower income. It was rougher, more congested, and the first immigrants to come to East London were French Huguenots. So they were protestants just like the rest of britain but they were french right so oh holy jesus here come you know frogs right and so everybody freaked out well then a generation later came the irish who were fleeing famine and other things in ireland and they came into east end well all of a sudden people forgot about the fact that these were french people and they recognized them as fellow protestants but they saw the irish came in and they said oh god catholics Fast forward a little bit later, and Eastern European Jews were coming in to escape the pogroms that were killing and oppressing them. Well, now all of a sudden, forget the fact that they're Catholics, they're still Christians. They're Jews coming into our neighborhood. And of course, as fate would have it, the next big group of people to come into East London were Muslims, right? And so all of a sudden, Jews start to look pretty British to people, you know? Not only were they largely European and had white skin you know, spoke the language more or less, they also, you know, they, they weren't brown, right? Muslims were coming in from Bangladesh. This is a very different group of people coming in. And P.S., That they are the subject of my first book. This is actually how I got into this. It's, it's, it's funny because I'm basically, I'm an immigration scholar. My work covers immigration and demographic change. And so, you know, I learned about white working class people and the issues that were arising from the perspective of Muslims in who were that last group into East London? So, uh, so to me, this is one of the key things in understanding this dynamic is that not just to understand the the deprivation of the loss of this community feels in absolute terms, but in terms of who they were then and who they are now. And this is really true. Want you answer a question more for Americans. But um, this is really true in both places that the the Brits and the Americans these were the people who were the center of our society yeah that's exactly right so since we were just briefly mentioning Muslims, one of the key findings from my first book because at the time and even still today lamentably, everyone's wondering why do Muslims radicalize? why do they you know start to rebel against their own societies and this was one of the fundamental motivating questions of my work. I then took that same question to ask about white working class people. Why are they radicalizing? Why are they turning against their societies? And for, for Muslims, the answer was, there is a sense of deprivation, the word that Liz used here. And in, when, we, when I say deprivation, I mean, there's a kind of ideal about the way the world ought to be. And then there's your perception about the way your world is. And the discrepancy matters. So if you have a big discrepancy, between the way the world ought to be and the way the world is, I found out that you were more likely to be radicalized. And so I said to myself, well, surely that's going to be true for white people. We're all human thoughts. It's to be the same. But I actually found that it was slightly tweaked. What I found in the field with white working class folks is that they were far more likely to support far-right parties and candidates. Not when there was a big discrepancy between the way the world is, and the way the world ought to be, but rather when there is a big discrepancy between the way the world is and the way the world was. And so the nature of white working class people's deprivation is nostalgic. They used to be on top, economically, socially, politically. They're not on top anymore. They were the heart of our country. That's who we thought of when we thought of America, right? We thought of thinking of it as the backbone, the industrial backbone, the heart and soul, right? And there was this sense that they really were, and it was validated with political power, with social dominance, you know, with decent-paying jobs, politicians who cared about them. And you know, for a steady period of time, they feel like that's no longer the case. And, and, and I guess this is a perfect moment to come back to make America great again, okay? Because that slogan, because it was Make America Great Again, what does that again say? It says, it used to be really great. And today, it ain't so great anymore. And that is what fundamentally resonated with Donald Trump's white working class supporters, is that they look back into the past and see greatness. And they haven't tasted that in a very long time. And I will add, that their perceptions of the past are rather uncomplicated. They're rather simplistic. They are uncomplicated by the legacies of oppression that we talked about, right? They're uncomplicated by the grinding nature of manufacturing work, the injunctions against working class unions. They're uncomplicated by all those complexities and the social ills that came from America's history that we have largely overcome with a variety of social movements since the 1960s. But for white working class people who are used to hearing oral histories, like the one that I shared with you, the very first question Liz asked about the photography, and they've been hearing these same stories about the glory of the mid-20th century in their cities and towns and their families, it sure sounded pretty good back then. He wrote, the average white resident could not conceive of progress coming from the future. That says everything, right? The the only way that my subjects saw a post-traumatic future was by re-establishing the pre-traumatic past. And and the difficult part here for all of us, I think, is that that past isn't coming back. It's not coming back. You're not going to recreate it. And you might make America great again, but you're not going to make it great in the way it used to be great. Because too much has changed. And I'm not just talking about socially. I'm also talking about economically. There is no way to revitalize the factories and mills of Youngstown, Ohio. No company will back it. So unless we're going to nationalize industries, which we know is not going to happen, then there is no way to do this fundamentally in a socially or economic way. There was a lot of interest in fracking coming in. And so you can imagine if you're in Youngstown, if um, we're having a debate about the environmental impacts of fracking, you don't care, right? You don't care you want because the industry fracking in. is like that big stroke, right? Right? Fracking is like you know that's like the the, the descendant of, of the new industry, and that's the way they see their future being rescued is through some big big company, one big swoop. They can't right. see it as something that you build organically yeah. as a community. It can only be the return of that because signature industry. So we're going to take a couple of questions and then and then come back to the discussion. Um, okay. So another way to perhaps view Jim Traficant is not so much that he heard his people, but that instead he was feeding their worst fears and used them for his own personal gain. As a matter of leadership, where's the line between speaking up for marginalized people and stoking their fears and? in order to be able to use them for your own personal gain. Now, that's a wonderful question. That is a moral question. You know, and uh, you know, I know we're in church, but I am not necessarily a moral philosopher, right? I'm I'm a social scientist. And so, you know, I think that, you know, it's it's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. You know, is where's our line? You know, I may have one line and other people have other lines that may be more pragmatic than, than otherwise. And I think many people question how much Donald Trump is using employing people's worst fears and feeding them is a pragmatic way of dividing people in ways that work. You know, this was an accusation that many Democrats made of the Bush administration and their culture wars, right? Because Karl Rove would identify what they would call a wedge issue. It was a way of splitting the electorate on something that invited people's passions. Right? So you can think of gay marriage, you can think of gun laws, you can think about religion in schools. These were things that people felt passionate about, but that really didn't affect them personally. If you wanted to have religion at school, you could go to a school that had religion. You know, if, if you didn't like the public schools, it removed it, right? If you, you know, I don't know, if you wanted to, if you didn't like gay marriage, don't marry a gay person. But, you know, the, the point is these are social issues that, that, that erupted a lot of tempers, right? And they divided people in ways that call rogue in the Republican Party. Found to be advantageous to them, they saw that they could get fifty five or sixty forty kind of vote shares on some of these issues, and that's why they would raise them so you know yeah, that's a dark side, and that's the dark side of these kinds of politics. But I think what we have to understand is that underneath many people feel and I'm not saying that this is true, but there is a sentiment that there is a a, a challenge to that moral order that I mentioned earlier that comes people of color or that comes from immigrants. And that's why for Donald Trump, Donald Trump isn't a Donald Trump politician without immigration. It's because that is the other. That is the reference point. And by castigating immigrants as the disruption or as the threat to that moral order, he is able to craft a sense of nationalism. And, and when I say crafting, I mean you're crafting in the negative space. Because what is America? It is what you want it to be. When I travel abroad and I lived in London for a long period of my life, when people said, what's America like? i said, say, well, it depends on where you go. And it depends on who you talk to. depends what time of day. depends what mood you're in personally. You know, there are so many different Americas. It's just too big of a country, too diverse of a country. And when I say diverse, I don't just mean ethnic, religious, or racially. I mean just ideologically, occupationally, lifestyle, culturally. How can we define what America is? So what Donald Trump has done is that he's been able to create the sense of nationalism, not by who we are, but by who we are not. Hi. So Karl Marx, one of my favorite things that Karl Marx said... Chinese is supposed to be taboo, but, right, he does the sack of potatoes, right? It's so not taboo in universities. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so, universities are like
0: bastions of Marxism. Okay, yeah. Shh, don't talk. Okay? Right, but this, so the sack of potato, which is the working class, they all know they're potatoes, but they don't realize they're a sack of potatoes, and until they know they're a sack of potatoes, like, revolution won't come. And then I think Du Bois is, says later, right, he says race, after he identifies race as being, like, the line, the most important thing that's going to happen for the 20th century, he says race is going to be the line that doesn't allow the working class to bring in change to itself or to attain any ground. They're going to let race divide them. And you talked a little bit about race within these communities, right? Because these communities a lot of times are relatively diverse, but they have their own understanding about whatever it is. And so I wonder if it's fair, if you would say that it's fair, what your reaction is to the idea of like, for those of us that sit maybe on the outside of that and don't live in those communities and are trying to understand, to think about, we understand systematic racism. Right, and we talk a lot about systematic racism and what that looks like in the 21st century, but almost like coexisting systems, if that makes sense. So, race is allowing like our perspective on these issues of class to be tainted because we see race first. Does that make sense? So, we either have coexisting systems or like overlapping systems that like maybe those of us in more affluent areas need to come to terms with in the future. Sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. What did you I didn't hear.
1: She what said, did you repeat, the que- repeat the question. I'm sorry. It's right. a lot of words.
0: How about this? I bet that by listening to my answer, you'll figure out what the question was. Because I will Good. consolidate that, that. As they say, Kaylee, can you put your question into the form of a question? Right. But I understand the question. The question is how race can divide working class constituencies, basically. And it's something I thought about a lot, and Marx is actually precisely the person that I, I used to, to explore this. So for those of you who, who kindly bought the book earlier, you can turn to the very beginning of uh, chapter five, and there's a quote from Karl Marx there, and I can't quote it verbatim, but basically Marx recognized that the aristocracy, the capitalists of Britain, and this is when he was living in London, he re- recognized that capitalists, sought to divide the working classes in Britain by separating them between the Irish and the English. And Remember, I mentioned that the Irish came in after the Huguenots. And they did so in order to disrupt their solidarity, to distract them by their national and ethnic and religious differences so that they were unable to focus on their economic interests that they shared. And that is a story of working class politics, you know, pretty much throughout time ever since. It is divide and conquer. Marx recognized between the English and the Irish, and today it is somehow impossible for Americans in the working classes to recognize that there are no black working class problems, there are no white working class problems, there are no brown working class problems. There are problems. Debt, student debt, foreclosures, they do not discriminate by the color of your skin. These kinds of issues, the inaccessibility of health care, affordable health care, does not discriminate. You don't get a discount for being white, black, or brown. These are all problems that everyone shares together. Labor standards, there are no white labor standards or black labor standards. Right? They're the standards. So is it possible because race is a visible thing and class is not necessarily always that, that some of the anger in, in these communities towards class divisions you know, are, are coming out through, through race as well, sort of adding to it? Maybe. I mean, I think that race is a more visceral connection, right? It's more poignant. It's more organic, whereas class is something that's socially, that's socially constructed. And the other thing that's hard in the United States about unifying people according to class is that we don't view class in the United States the way they view it in much of Europe, and particularly in Britain, which is very class conscious. In Britain, you are born into a class. You inherit class, just like I inherited, you know, dark brown hair. You inherit it. And so if you are a working class person who becomes wealthy, you are still just a working-class boy or girl who's done well for themselves. In the United States, that's not true. You're just rich. And so we see class as something that is easily shed, like snakeskin, when you move up in the world. And in that way, I, it struck me that sort of in Youngstown, I, I don't know, it feels like there are some things in America that are going to make it easier for us to get through some of this. In that, you know, you describe still in these communities, you know, they're one, you know, good break away from things changing. That's right. the it's... American dream is still there ideologically, even if it isn't
1: logistically
0: ba- based on how much we are moving up. In Youngstown, Ohio, and much of the United States, the American dream occupies the space only shared by Jesus Christ and George Washington. They are infallible, unquestionable in so many places. Yet, when you look at the statistics, the data, the economic data about inequality in this country, and more importantly, not about inequality, but about immobility, the chances of a poor person moving up in income in this world is lower today than at any time in American history. And, remarkably, you have a better chance of moving up today if you are not white either. And this is due to a variety of selection effects. But the point is that the American dream, it's not dead. It's on like, it means a mouth to mouth resuscitation right now. So there is this daydream that you can move up in society and therefore you're not inheriting your class. But the greatest single determinant of your future income is birth. So you are inheriting your class. United States. So we're getting more like Europe.
1: Right? We are becoming
0: more like Europe. And some other European countries you have a much better chance of being mobile. So really it's the like Slovakian dream or the Austrian dream, you know, or the Albanian dream. I'm not sure if those countries are any better, but I can tell you that it's no longer the American dream the way it once was. That one over here. When I hear you talk about the new minority, I immediately think that they're being disruptive and to tell them to go pound sand because they're not being oppressed. What is an effective way forward to discuss that I worry that we're seeing a projection back in time where people have told Muslims that they're not being oppressed, people have told black people that they're not being oppressed. How do we accept that they have legitimate concerns and move forward? Sure. The first step we can take is to not have to compete with who's been oppressed more. It is the most fruitless, unproductive debate we can have. No one ever wins, and usually everyone loses because everyone feels devalued, right? And so I don't think that the solution to this is to remind white working class people how well they have and how well they've had it. It's just not going to get you anywhere, no matter how right you are you know, or feel you are. However, with regard to calling them a minority, and remember, this is something that I am you know, channeling from the field. It also challenges the way we understand who a minority is, because if a minority is only about those legacies of oppression and only about any number, then, yeah, white working class people are probably not a minority per se. White people certainly are not a minority per se. But how many important concepts are subject to race? I'll give you an important concept. Three. The number three. That's a concept, right? We know what three is. Everyone understands what three is. Is three different when you're white, when you're black, or when you're brown? No. For all of them, three is three, right? So, minority is a concept, like three, and it refers to a, a sense of disempowerment. How useful is minority as a concept if we say, well, it doesn't apply to you if you're white? Disempowerment is disempowerment. Just like three three I' got several questions. Uh, one is, to what extent do you think the folks that were voting for Trump in this white working class demographic were accurately sizing up their self-interest? And the questioner thinks about things like Obamacare and other policies that have always acted as a social safety net that might be lost? I'll start with the idea that white working class people vote against their interests, okay? Because this is something that I'm on a bit of a crusade about. So white working-class people did not vote in their rational, economic interests, and that is usually the way we think of rational interests, because that's the way you think. You think that rationality is economic rationality, right? I weigh costs and benefits, and I make a decision. But there are other interests that come into play when people are voting, and white working-class people rest assured, voted in their interests. They voted in their cultural interests. Okay? And so the next response from many of my liberal or democratic friends is, well, that is really selfish because they allowed their cultural interests to, you know, overwhelm uh, their economic interests. And there is something that they say particularly about people who were well-off and voted for Trump, right? Well, what does it say about them? Those are people who vote for Trump out of their economic interests and set aside their cultural interests. But we don't say to them, why didn't you vote for your cultural interests? Right? We don't tell rich Trump voters, shame on you for for not letting your cultural interests win. But we do tell poor Trump voters, shame on you for not letting your economic interests win. There is a hypocrisy in that. Right? And there's also a misunderstanding about what interests are. Someone else wants to hear you talk. I think about trade and the the Chinese dream and how so much of the wealth of this country has been outsourced to places far away and how that fits into this whole equation. Trade. I will leave that to the president to discuss because I don't. I, you know, aside from, I, I can tell you that trade is the thorniest issue only because. The parties are split because Republicans have enough populists there right now, or people scared of populists with pitchforks, that they want to appeal to them. And Democrats have that old, hardcore leftists that are protectionists. And so they're really split by trade right now in the same way they're split by immigration. So we are depressingly short on time, so let's go fast. Um, We've got a question here, and then we'll get to you. We have had another speaker here, Hedrick Smith. And among the things he said is that in the 1950s, for instance, General Motors' CEO made 30 times what the factory line worker made. Now the CEO makes 300 times what the factory line worker makes. Why isn't the same kind of negative reaction to those corporate CEOs at the top rather than directed at those who are, for all intents and purposes, at the same level they are or lower. It goes back to this conception of the American dream about that mobility, that fluidity, is that one day maybe you'll be that CEO, and so I'm not going to hate on rich people, right? And the other factor I think we can't underestimate is that it hasn't become a salient political issue because our politicians aren't making it a salient political issue. That CEO is donating probably to both parties. And until campaign finance becomes and becomes fairer, where you really do have one person, one vote. And if folks haven't read The USA is Lesterland, if I can make a plug for that book, it's by Harvard Law professor Larry Lessig. It's a brilliant book about campaign finance. It just shows just how corrupted, not corrupt, corrupted the American political system is by money. And so that can't be underestimated. Also, there's a woman in red behind you Thank who is you. very fervent and wanting to get the question. <laughs> uh, and she's been and she's been very patient, so let's throw that into the batch. <laughs> All right, so Okay. I like the notion of looking at the white working class as a minority in that it has this angst between what is and what had been. However, what had been and what seems to be most attractive is that Wilbur Cash Proto Dorian Bond activity where people are identifying over whiteness. But these white working class people back in the again days, for the most part, were just what I call serving sentry duty on the color line. They were they were doing what? Serving sentry duty on the color line. Mm-hmm. That's their job. They lost their job when that mill left, and I'm from Pittsburgh, but they reinvented themselves. Yes, Young, and, but Youngstown and these other cities all around didn't. You know, when they lost that job that they had back when America was great, I, I guess I'm. What I'm saying is that for minorities in this country, the pursuit of happiness has been curtailed. There are no paths to happiness. The pursuit is not allowed. White working class don't have that problem that's where I, that's where I'm struggling because if if you're going to stay in a town for forty years and sit there and think that this stuff is going to come back that's that's a, they would rather go back to the century duty than reinvent themselves, and that's where I'm having to struggle with the the notion of them being a minority because their path is not blocked no so so I think that's a great point and, and this and this returns right in in, in the sense that minoritization is. Subjective, right? And I don't—it's not something we can compete about, right? You know, if we say, you know, to white working-class people at Youngstown, well, you didn't have it this hard, and we remind them that on those assembly lines there was a stratification according to race and ethnicity, right? The folks in the furnace area of the steel mills were black. The folks in the second worst job were Italian. The third worst job were Jews, and then you worked your way up to whatever ethnic hierarchy they concocted right? It's not that, you know, it's just that the the vision of the past is simplified, right? But my point is that I think from a rhetorical perspective, from a political perspective, it it isn't really worth our breath to challenge white working class people on the sense of vulnerability that they feel today. Rather, we need to understand it, but demonstrate that we are all vulnerable in similar ways, that there is a lot more between us that we share than that's different particularly from a political perspective, amongst working-class folks. I don't think the white working-class wants to admit the similarity. Because no, you they see absolutely that? don't. They have to release that whiteness. They absolutely don't. And let me just take a more critical race perspective here. There are arguments out there, historical arguments, that the white working-class differentiated themselves, despite being in a rather terrible situation otherwise, that uh, their number one concern was to not be associated with black people, historically. And that slavery, the removal of slavery, was the one last bastion of Jim Crow that actually separated whites from blacks, poor whites from poor blacks. Now, what's the difference, right? And it is that kind of coming to reality moment where you say, what is different between me? Aren't I just as low on this totem pole that I think is so unnerving to many white working class people that their status in society is no different than a black person? When there was some solace in their minds that came with a moral order and a social hierarchy that subordinated people of color. All right, so I'm probably last, Steve, you have the. Um... So I got a, I got a, what's it like to be you? Question, especially <laughs> in your role as a, a bridge that you're playing now as a as a researcher that's that's functioning as a bridge, especially for those of us that also like to be bridges in our community. I mean, you are a researcher who specializes in representing misunderstood populations that scare people. And then you have to take your understanding and you come back and you translate that and interpret that um, with compassion and dignity to your own people, to see your own tribe. I just wonder if that's tricky for you. I mean, we're in a time where even any openness to the other can get you garner immediate suspicion. I'm just wondering what that's like for you to play that. Bridge. You have to go fast. It's a challenge and it's a wonderful challenge. It's a blessing. And I think that, you know, it reinforces, you know, my faith in community and humanity that folks who are very different from me will accept me into their homes and and talk to me. But I'll, I'll tell you what a lot of you may forget is that when you talk to people who are used to being marginalized, the fact that someone like me or anyone from the outside, will come and listen, is a revolution. You know, we have to listen. And, you know, my great-grandfather, who uh, who lived up the road from here, actually, in Fitzgerald, Georgia, I think I flew over it coming over here, used to say that the sign of an intelligent person is that they listen very well. And I would tweak that even further. I would say that that can be the greatest blessing or good deed you do for someone. Is to actually fear them, because listening quietly validates what people say, and I think that for so many white working class people, they have felt invalidated, and that is the source of this great tension. And they yearn for the time when they can matter. And I think a lot of them opened up to me in the way that they have because I actually listened. And so I, you know, I'll, I'll end the story. When I was presenting the book up at uh, Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, a student, a freshman, approached me after the session. And he was a Chinese-American student from New Jersey. And he said to me, Professor Guest, this was, you know, really eye-opening. I didn't realize these people existed. And he said, can I just ask some advice? I said, sure, of course. He says, how can I learn more about them? Like, what do I need to, like, do and read, you know, to learn about them? And I said, you need to go and meet them. That's how you can learn about them. And I think that's something that all of us can do is to go and meet folks who we otherwise are intimidated by, fear, disagree with, to provoke that dialogue. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you so much. It was spectacular.
1: Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you. Who else had some major aha moments during this program? I sure did. Several questions that have puzzled me for years were answered, and I find myself just so thankful to Dr. Justin Guest for helping me understand new perspectives. And you know, I think it's incredibly brave for him to tackle this very sensitive topic of the new minority. Because we're now living in this world where speaking about an unpopular narrative can get you canceled in a millisecond. So to protect ourselves, we often keep quiet. But if we discard what Justin's extensive research has demonstrated, it doesn't make all that stuff go away. It just leads to more misunderstandings and divisions. So here's what's on my mind right now. In case you didn't know, I'm white. And now that I'm all inspired by Justin's bravery, I have to tell you that I have heard white people talk about us losing ground, how we're going to be the minority, and how growing up as a white male today is especially challenging. And hearing that at the same time as I was doing some personal learning About how hard it is to be a minority, I felt so confused as to how people that I know to be smart, kind, and good people can see something like this so differently. And I think that Justin just completely nailed it. And this has made me realize how easy it is for us, me, uh, me over here raising my hand. To make judgments and assumptions about other people from our own vantage point. How little we're trying to understand people's circumstances and viewpoints. How we're barely talking anymore to people outside of our comfort tribes. But we're still insulting them, often without even realizing it. like that part about how we make judgments about other people voting against their own interests. And I think maybe we feel smarter or superior because we believe we see things more clearly when really we have just misunderstood others in a huge way and probably oversimplified the situation. So now, thanks to Justin's excellent talk, I have realized that for me, who is getting by okay in this world, With stable job opportunities, a savings account, and retirement, I can't possibly fully understand the priorities of people who don't have the stability that I enjoy. And I don't think we can discount the role of broken public trust. As Justin pointed out, for so many people, things haven't been good for a very long time. And so disrupting the system might feel like the only or maybe the best way to really bring change. I have to tell you, my mind was opened a lot during this talk. I also loved the historical information that Justin gave about how different groups of people in different areas of the world have dealt with similar issues as they've come to live together in the same communities. I recognize that personally, I have a tendency to feel like we're unique in these times you know, we've never been so divided. And why are we as Americans struggling with this? It's all so bad. But having this historical context about how other areas have dealt with the same dynamics, it's so helpful to just sort of put it all in context and to look at the long view All right, that's about it for today's program. Before we sign off, we'd like to thank Florida Humanities for partnering with us to present this podcast series, Created Equal and Breathing Free. Also, thanks to Lee Hinkle and Spence Davis for helping to make these programs possible through their generous donations. And we thank you as well for being part of this journey with us. To stay up to date with all that's happening at the Village Square, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to The New Minority with Dr. Justin Guest. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Square Cast.